Ninch, and as I said earlier, one of the elders and one of the pastors uh, in training. And as Ross said, we're continuing our series in Hebrews this morning, and we'll be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 11. Uh, But before we get started, uh, let's pray to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come uh, before your word this morning, I ask that you'd help us Uh, to set aside any distractions uh, that might stop us uh, from hearing from you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today from the riches of your word, uh, that it may make progress uh, in our lives, that you'd cause us to grow in ways uh, that we haven't yet grown, uh, that you'd teach us things uh, that we don't yet know and remind us of things that we've long forgotten. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you have needed to persevere. Uh, Perhaps you're one of these interesting individuals who uh, enjoys the obstacle course known as Tough Mudder, Uh, enduring electric shocks, uh, masses of mud, and pools of ice cubes, you press on towards the goal of that lovely orange sweatband. Or maybe you've done the West Highland Way or done some other long-distance walk, or climbed Munro's where it's necessary uh, to dig in and to keep going. Maybe you've had to persevere with a a relationship with someone. Uh, People have told you to give up, but you've persevered in the hope that something will change. Perhaps in bringing up children, you've had to persevere with the same message again and again and again. Maybe in your studies, you've had to show perseverance in doing extra work and in putting in extra hours to reach your goal of passing an exam or completing a course. What is it that helps us persevere in situations that other people might quit in? Surely it is because we can see beyond the mud and the pain and the cold to the finishing line. Or in more serious situations, to see beyond the difficulty in front of us. Surely his ability to see uh, a better relationship with the person you're working with, or because you can see that passing your course will lead to open doors and better things. Now, the same is true in the Christian faith. In the last part of Hebrews 10, the writer to the Hebrews was encouraging them to keep going in the Christian faith, to not be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to persevere so that, as chapter 10, verse 36 says, when they've done the will of God, they will receive what God has promised. And as we move into chapter 11 today, it's still this persevering faith that the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. In our our passage this morning, I think the writer does something uh, incredibly uh, kind and incredibly clever. He doesn't move straight from persevere, don't shrink back. Now, crack on with that. No, what he does is he defines in this little passage what persevering faith is, and then he puts it on display, giving us three real-life examples of persevering faith. So, how does the writer to the Hebrews define and display persevering faith? Well, let's look at our Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 7, and that's on uh, 
page 1209 in the Church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So two straightforward points uh, this morning from God's word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 7, shows us persevering faith defined and persevering faith displayed. Let's look firstly at how the writer to the Hebrews defines persevering faith. Look with me again at verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So, faith that perseveres is about two things. It's about having a confidence in something that hasn't happened yet, and it's about trusting in something that we cannot see. Now, this would have been so important to the people who received this letter to understand. You see, Old Testament religion was very visible, very tangible. All of your senses were involved. As we've seen already in Hebrews, there was an enormous building where God dwelled called the tabernacle. There were animal sacrifices offered regularly to pay for the sins of the people. There were priests dressed in ornate robes. They carried out rituals in front of all the people. Religion in the Old Testament was highly visible, highly tangible. As I say, all of your senses were involved. But in the book of Hebrews, we have been learning that all of these visible things, uh, all of these temporary visible things, have been replaced by things that are eternal and invisible. So in chapter 9, we saw that the tabernacle is no more, and it's been replaced by a heavenly sanctuary, which is not of this creation. The animal sacrifices are no longer needed because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And this same Jesus did away with the need for earthly priests as well. Because as we saw in chapter 4, he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens into the presence of the unseen God. And yet we know that he's not staying there. Because as we saw last time, in chapter 10, verse 39, he who is coming, that's Jesus, will come and will not delay. 
these are the things we have not seen. And this is what we hope for, the return of Jesus Christ. And this, according to verse 1 of our passage, is what persevering faith takes hold of. Faith is essentially saying, I'm satisfied that all of this truth, all of this teaching about what's happened, has actually happened. And faith is saying that all of this truth and all of this teaching about what's going to happen really will happen in the future. This is not faith that is blind. Uh, This is not wishful thinking. Uh, This is not a leap in the dark. Because this is faith uh, that is a, a confident trust in a God who has made himself known through his word, the Bible. And a God who has made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises always come true. In short, the God who says these things uh, and the God who does these things does not lie and will not fail. And so faith is the right response to what God says. Not a, a kind of casual acceptance to what we do not see. No, it is the right response to what God says. A confidence uh, and an assurance that what God says he will do, he really will do. The writer then moves on to illustrate what assurance about what we do not see actually looks like. He does this down in verse 3. Have a a look with me. By faith we understand uh, that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The writer is saying to his readers, you want to see what faith in unseen things looks like? Then look at the world around you that God has made. They didn't notice or or observe or witness the world being made. Neither did we. No one did except God. Now, through reasoning, we might be able to prove that the world was created or indeed created by God. But how the world was created, we cannot establish through reason. But we do have God's statement on the subject, his revelation. In in Genesis chapter 1, that revelation is that he created the, the universe out of nothing. And our knowledge as Christians and it stems from our belief of that revelation. This universe God created by speaking, by commanding, verse 3 says, into existence. And so the question is, will this, this same God not also do all the other things that we've hoped for? The return of Jesus Christ and eternal life with him. Have confidence, the writer to the Hebrews says. Have assurance If you've been uh, with us throughout the Hebrews series, you might have noticed uh, that there are a number of warnings all the way throughout Hebrews. We see a warning against falling away in chapter 1, a warning against turning away in chapter 3, and warning is against shrinking back and throwing away our confidence in chapter 10. It could be that the Hebrews were having some doubts about their faith, doubts that or on the doubts because they, they'd lost the visible side of their religion. Perhaps that is why the writer to the Hebrews is taking the time in verses 1 to 3 to define what faith is. Now, the same, of course, can be true of Christians today. What are the ways that we are preoccupied with the visible aspects of religion? For some people, it's about a regular routine. 
uh, rather than a relationship with God. If I'm in this place at this time on this day, that's good enough for me. For some people, it's about creating a kind of atmosphere, a kind of uh, a man-made atmosphere, either to look impressive or to encourage a particular kind of response. For some people, the visible religion they like is, is very formal. Uh, you know, the service, the style, uh, the way they want people to dress. Others would run a mile from that, making things as informal as possible. But these people are just as preoccupied with visible religion as the people who like formality. An obsession with all things visible distracts our hearts and our minds from being focused on that which is most important, from being focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, who we do not see and who ministers to us from the heavenly sanctuary. A preoccupation with visible religion won't do that, whatever our preference might be. Only faith in Christ will. Well, this faith uh, that we've had defined for us, this, this persevering faith, is, as verse 2 points out, what the ancients were commended for. And we're going to consider some of these ancients just now uh, as we consider their example under my second point, which is persevering faith displayed. Really, the rest of chapter 11 is, is filled with examples of these ancients. In other words, these people from the Old Testament who serve as commendable examples of persevering faith. I wonder how these people uh, would feel about being called the ancients. Uh, I look forward to asking them one day. Uh, and to you young people this, uh, this morning, can I encourage you not to use that expression at the dinner table uh, to anybody you're having lunch with? I don't think that will go down particularly well. But anyway, these three ancients in our passage this morning are Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And my question, as I've studied these three men, is, is why are they there? Why these three people? Now, some people think of Hebrews as a, a hall of fame of people in the Bible who have demonstrated faith. But it's important to understand that it's not an exhaustive list. We actually find that the writer to the Hebrews admits this at the end of the chapter. He says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak, etc. And there were others who were tortured and so on. So it's not an exhaustive list. Uh, let's be really clear about this. Uh, but what is it about Abel and Enoch and Noah? And what they display, uh, what do they display uh, about persevering faith? Well, let's start uh, by thinking about Abel. The reason that Abel is held up as an example of persevering faith is that Abel's worship was acceptable to God. We learn about Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He and his brother Cain uh, were Adam and Eve's sons. Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And in Genesis 4, we read that the, both of these men uh, brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brought uh, produce that he'd farmed and Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, the Lord looked on Abel's offering with favor, but he was not happy with Cain's offering. And so what we have is both of them offering sacrifices, but we see that Abel's one was better. It was more acceptable to God. But the question is, why is this the case? And the answer is that Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice. He killed an animal. 
And his offering was a good part of the animal. We know that from the passage in Genesis uh, because he offered the fat. Uh, That is the choicest bit, the best bit of the animal. And just like all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, Abel's sacrifice was a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. He understood that this firstborn of his flock was a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By faith, Abel was looking forward to a greater sacrifice than the animal one that he offered. But how do we know this for sure? Well, because verse 4 in our passage says that it was by faith that Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Even from the very start of human history, as Ross said earlier, people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, a faith that was made effective at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ which is what these animal sacrifices were pointing to. And this faith, as I said earlier, is the right response to what God said. The right response to God's divine revelation. And a revelation that must have been made to both Cain and Abel about their duty to offer a sacrifice and about this acceptable way to actually offer that sacrifice. We don't have that written down for us in Genesis 4, but it seems to be the most feasible explanation of what's happening here. John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, puts it like this. Cain considered God only as a creator and preserver, whereon he offered the fruits of the earth. The faith of Abel was fixed on God, not only as a creator, but as a redeemer also, who had appointed the way of redemption by sacrifice and atonement. The facts are as follows. Abel brought a better offering than his brother. That offering was a blood sacrifice. God spoke well of this offering, and by faith, Abel was commended for it. Abel is put on display in this passage because he is a man whose worship was acceptable to God. He gave the best that he could give to his God. And because of this, verse 5 tells us, by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Now, obviously, I'm speaking to you about Abel and his faith, and so in that sense, Abel is still speaking even though he's dead. But the same could be said of the other two people in our passage and the people that we're going to hear about in future weeks. And yet it's only Abel who is described as the one who still speaks even though he's dead. Why is that? Well, turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so Abel is still speaking even though he is dead, not just through the offering he brought through his death, like Jesus, sorry, not just through his offering, but through his death. His death was like Jesus, in the sense that he was murdered by his own people. However, where Abel's death brought God's vengeance on Cain, Jesus' death brought God's forgiveness for sinners. So that is Abel, whose worship was acceptable to God. But what about Enoch, 
It's a good Scottish name, isn't it? Enoch. How does he display persevering faith? Let's read verse 5 again. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Like Abel, we need to go back to Genesis and to chapter 5, verse 24, to find out about Enoch. And to be honest, there's not a great deal that's, that's uh, said about him. Uh, we learn about his children, and we learned, uh, that, learned that he lived till he was 365 years old. Uh, we don't, interestingly, read that he pleased God, which is what we've just read in Hebrews chapter 11. Instead, what we read in uh, Genesis 5 uh, on two separate occasions in the four verses about Enoch, is that Enoch was someone who walked faithfully with God. And so clearly the writer to the Hebrews is associating pleasing God with walking faithfully with God. The logic of Hebrews 11 verse 5 is that Enoch was someone who pleased God before he was taken from this life. And Enoch being taken from this life without experiencing death is evidence of God being pleased with him. And so we can say that Enoch's walk was pleasing to God. Now, I think it's important to stress that uh, Enoch's case is quite unique, okay? Uh, teachers, I know that you're probably enjoying your Easter break, but nobody's going to write you a note saying that God has taken you away and that you will not be experiencing death. You have to go back to school. I'm very sorry about that. Enoch's case is quite unique. But that doesn't mean that we can't imitate Enoch. Walking with God is associated with being in a right relationship with him. As Christians, we can please God by walking with him. How do we do that? Well, let's keep with the walking theme. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul talks about walking by faith and not by sight. This life is full of difficulties full of trials. We've already heard about some of them this morning. And it's in the midst of such things that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. But he's able to say that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee that we shall inherit a house or a body not made with hands, eternal in the heaven, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So walking with God is about living in expectation of and with a longing to be with God when Christ returns. That's the hope of verse 1 again. Walking with God involves walking by faith and not by sight. Let's keep with the walking theme. Walking with God also involves walking in the light, according to 1 John. Walking in the light of God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus, which gives us cleansing from sin, fellowship with God, and fellowship with fellow Christians. Finally, walking with God involves keeping in step with the Spirit. As we do that, we'll see the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As these things bear fruit in our life. Enoch was a man who by faith walked with God, and we can do that too. And I think it's really important to notice from verse 6 that without such faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you see that in verse 6? Because anyone who comes to him 
must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me ask you, do you ever think that God could be pleased with you? Does that ever form part of your thinking about God? We had uh, baptisms last Sunday, and people took the opportunity to share the story of how they came to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the guys grew up believing in a God who, who couldn't be pleased. He was very clear with that in his testimony. He shared how he used to think that God was this distant character, uh, just keeping an eye on what he was doing, noting down all the bad stuff he did, not someone to have a relationship with. And I wonder if you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, if that's how you think of God, that he's an angry God uh, who can't be pleased no matter how hard you try. Well, the part of the Bible that we're studying this morning says the exact opposite. We're learning about a God who can be pleased, and amazingly, a God who actually tells us what it is that pleases him. And it's this, it's faith in him. Faith in him that perseveres. Faith which is the right response to what God says in his word, the Bible. You see, it's in the Bible that we learn about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the Bible that we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to this earth and that he lived a perfect life and that he died a perfect death, a, a death that had been spoken of earlier in Scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to the disciples and to many other people. And it's in the Bible that we see that he ascended to heaven and that he's now at the right-hand side of the Father praying for people who have faith in him. And it's in the Bible that we see that one day he will return and take those who have persevered in faith to be with him. This is the reward uh, in verse 6 that those who earnestly seek him will receive. It's called eternal life. And if you earnestly seek him, you can receive that eternal life today. We would love to talk to you uh, about that later on. What a gracious God that he could be pleased with us. And not only that, that he tells us how we can please him. What a gracious God that rewards those people who earnestly seek him uh, with eternal life. Verse 6 teaches that pleasing God starts with believing that God exists. Uh, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not quite sure that, uh, that God exists. It's still a big uh, question for you. Well, can I invite you to something that we run called Christianity Explored? Uh, it starts this Thursday night uh, in this building, and it runs over seven evenings, and you can ask all your questions about the existence of God and have them answered by people who have earnestly sought after God and who are uh, seeking by faith to please him. Well, that's Enoch, uh, whose walk was pleasing to God. Let's finally look at Noah. He is the final Old Testament example of persevering faith uh, in our passage this morning. Look with me again at verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, 
in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. I think if we were to pop downstairs and ask any of the kids what Noah was warned about, uh, even the youngest amongst them would be familiar with the story in the book of Genesis of Noah being warned about the flood and being instructed to build an ark. But again, the question is, how does the story of Noah demonstrate or display what persevering faith is? Well, it's because Noah witnessed to God's coming judgment. Noah witnessed to God's coming judgment. And the first thing that we can say is that Noah had a healthy fear of God's coming judgment. The writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 10 that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Noah would absolutely sign up to that statement, and it spurred him into doing what God instructed uh, as he went about building an ark. Imagine the ridicule. All those years working on this boat, still waiting on the flood, Noah. Are you still working on that ridiculous project, Noah? Are you absolutely sure that God told you to build an ark, Noah? Look, Noah, there's a flood! Only kidding. It didn't matter. The certainty of God's promise mattered more than any sneering he might have experienced. Noah had a healthy fear of God's judgment and confidence in what he hoped for and assurance about what he did not see. God promised to save Noah's family and Noah believed God. And by faith, he built the ark. The right response to what God had said to him. What a witness Noah's life would have been to a watching world. But Noah didn't just witness with his life. Uh, he wasn't a silent witness. No, he witnessed with his words too. You see, the other thing that Noah did by faith was condemn the world. You see that in verse 7. How did he condemn the world? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. You see, as well as putting an ark together, he also preached to everyone who would listen. That's what a herald does. Noah called people to put their faith in God, to repent and to live righteous lives, lives that pleased God and put him first. At the end of Hebrews 10, it speaks of people who shrink back from their faith and are destroyed. Noah is the very opposite of that. He is the perfect example of someone who persevered in faith and was saved along with his family. Noah, just like Abel and Enoch, displays the sort of life by faith that those of us who are Christians are meant to live in this day and age. And as we reflect on Noah's witness, I wonder, are we living lives of faith, confident in what we hope for and assured about what we do not see? Or how starkly our lives contrast with the watching world round about us? Are we those who, with a sense of urgency, warn people of God's coming judgment? Do we demonstrate the righteous lives that are meant to be lived by faith? Well, verse 7 says that Noah, having lived this sort of life, became an heir of righteousness. 
Now, to be righteous is to have a perfect standing before God. And that's exactly what Noah had. And notice that it was given to him. We see that in verse 7. He was an heir of righteousness. This righteousness wasn't given. It was not earned. Sorry, it was given. It was not earned. Noah wasn't perfect. I don't want anyone to go away thinking that he was a model person. You'll see that if you read Genesis chapter 9. He couldn't earn his way to God in that sense. No, his perfect standing before God, his righteousness was given to him. Noah was an heir of righteousness. And if you're here today and you're living by faith, and that describes you as well. What an incredible thought to be an heir of righteousness. You have a perfect standing before a holy God, which he has given to you freely. Let me finish by saying that the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah showed itself in their taking God at his word and in living their lives in line with that word, confident in what they hoped for and assured about what they did not see. They're examples of how this influenced their worship and uh, their walk with God and their witness for him. In the coming days, we're going to give thanks to God for the lives of Donald Cormack and Isabel Hawkins, two much-loved members of this church who persevered to the end and who witnessed to their faith by their words and by their faithful lives. The reality for them is that the things they hoped for in Christ, they now have. The, the assurance that they had in this life but did not see, they now see as they are with Christ uh, in paradise at home with their Lord. But what about you and me as we wait for that day? Will we demonstrate that same persevering faith in the face of all that life throws at us? Confident in what we hope for, assured about we don't yet see, what we don't yet see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are sorry that we are so often caught up in uh, the visible things. Uh, we're sorry that our hearts and our minds are so often distracted from being focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, who we do not see and who ministers to us in his heavenly sanctuary. We thank you for these examples of men who, by faith, persevered, who demonstrated faith in action, uh, in the worship that they gave, uh, in their walk with you, and in their witness to the world. We thank you that in this passage we see that you are a God who is pleased with those who live by faith and who rewards those who earnestly seek you. And we thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh God, would you grant us faith that perseveres? Would you bring back those who are in danger of shrinking away? Give us faith that does not buckle under the many responsibilities and the many trials of this life. Give us a faith that does not shrink back under pressure from a mocking world. And please 
O God, as we persevere in faith and as we witness to you with our lives and with our words, would you cause many in this city to earnestly seek you? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.